In a noisy city like New York, it's sometimes hard to find a place to unwind. Good morning, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. On this morning's show, we'll check out some places that make it easy to forget about it all, like the so-called Wame Bird Garden in Manhattan's Chinatown. And some of my colleagues here at WFUV will share how they escape from their everyday hustle and bustle. Also today, what makes a neighborhood the perfect retreat? And if yours doesn't fit that bill, how can you change that? That's all coming up on Cityscape from 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. We all expect to see pigeons in New York City parks. So you can imagine the surprise when passersby encounter exotic songbirds at a garden in Lower Manhattan. The little oasis is just south of Delancey Street in Sarah Delano Roosevelt Park. Every morning, rain or shine, Chinese immigrants show off their pets, so-called wame birds. I visited the park on a recent Saturday morning and was immediately greeted by an avian chorus. This morning, there are some 40 birds in the garden. They're in handmade bamboo cages. Some of the cages are placed among the garden's greenery. Others hang from poles pieced together from old plumbing pipes or swing from a nylon line. And some of the cages are covered with white cotton sheets. The birds are very territorial, I'm told. When they see each other, they fight. Otherwise, they sing. My name's Tommy Chan. I'm an artist, actually, from upstate New York. Today, I bring about nine birds here. I come here every weekend, bring the bird here to sing. Wame is the songbird very well known in China. My name is Ray Lee. I'm from, uh, from Brooklyn. They sing and they uh, try to find a, uh, a male, a female. That's why they sing. I always thought they were female birds. Uh, I thought they were Maria Callas, but now I find out they're guys singing like Povarotti, swooning the, the female. My name is Anna Magenta, and I'm the president of the Foresight Garden Conservancy. There's so much to learn here, actually. This park is very good for therapy. Elderly people get together, chatting, have a little cup of coffee or so, and talk about how you're raising your bird and exchanging ideas, nutrition for the bird. Uh, you know, all these little different things. They say things like, my bird sings better than yours. There's a level of competition about who sings best and who looks best, who's the most beautiful. That's a male. That's a male. Right. Does female sing? A uh, little. A uh, little. Yeah. Uh, uh. But you need the female for the male to sing, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more thing. Right? Is, is it the female? Right, right. Can they be in the same cage or different cage? My uh, name is Penny Davidson, and I'm from New York City. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, you're like you're working, walking in a forest with all these different uh, forest sounds. It's like watching a sunrise. My name is Alden James, and I'm from Gramercy Park, New York City. It points to the magic of the city in, in connecting diverse cultures. Chinatown's Wame Bird Garden has been around since the mid-1990s. One of the people we just heard from helped to create it, Anna Magenta, the founder of the Forsyth Garden Conservancy. She says the park that's now home to the garden was once full of trash and frequented by drug dealers. 
and that's no longer the case. But Magenta says protecting the garden is a constant battle. Magenta says she successfully fought off plans for a dog run in the park. But the use of leaf blowers is an on-again, off-again problem. She doesn't want the parks department to use the blowers because she says they scare the birds and annoy parkgoers. Okay, so let's say birds aren't your thing. What other ways are there to relax? Well, we asked around the station to see how folks here at WFUV escape, and we got some interesting responses. So, uh, let's see, liquor holder in a coat pocket, that's probably flask, it's five letters. So then I look down at uh, one, two, three, four, five down to see if that would work with flask. One down is spare tire, in quotes, which is probably flab. And content of some cones. My name is Laura Fideli. I am the web director here at WFUV. You know, we all have our frustrations and we need to have a release. You have a release, a very common one, I think, perhaps here in New York City. Tell us about that. Well, uh, New Yorkers can be proud of the fact that our New York Times newspaper prints the best crossword puzzle in the world every day. And uh, there's a whole little club of us who use this little puzzle as a way to... um, Get away from it all in a quiet little way in your head. Down, three down, possibly eight. That would be a good guess. Four down would begin with an S. Eight letters. Farmer's headwear. Farmer's headwear. Not sure. All right. I'm going to let that hold. How long does it take you generally to finish them? Uh, well, it depends on the day of the week. You know, uh, Monday, uh, Monday, Tuesday, you're looking at like a... Uh, four to six minute puzzle Wednesday Thursday you might get eight to ten minutes out of it I like to I don't I don't race myself on the weekend I like that's when I like the coffee feet up porch you know take my time maybe spend a half an hour I'm not really a morning person I know there are a lot of people who really like the coffee crossword morning to their day I'm really um I I like it to mark the end of my day. I get home from work and I can sit on my porch with a puzzle and then I know that um I'm finished with work and I've it's a little it's almost like um a few minutes of meditation. It's just this kind of calm, quiet what is 32 across? Uh, my name is Ben Jones. I work here as the music manager with Russ and Rita. Ben, I see you as a very creative guy, so I'm very interested to know <laughs> what you do to get away from it all. Um, well, recently, just this past summer, I found something really unique out. It's a place called the Lamont Young Dream House. And basically, it's this, this third-floor apartment. And it's totally carpeted, and it's like kind of bathed in this purple light. And... The, the unusual thing is there are eight speakers set up in this room, and they're all sending out these very specific tones. And the reason it's so unique is that you actually be, you're able to participate in the tones because as you shift, you can't help but hear a new tone. So it's almost like you're a human theremin. You're able to bend the sound and bring it down. And a lot of people just go there to meditate to make out, to study, and it's like an all-purpose space. Take us there, Ben. Take us there. Get us inside your mind when you were there and how you allow things just to melt away. Well, I think probably the best way to really understand it is 
my favorite moment of the experience was when I had fallen asleep. You know, I passed out for about a half an hour, but waking up totally like absorbed in these really warm multi-frequency tones is very womb-like. <laughs> My name is Tara Anderson, and I'm Assistant Program Director here at FUV, and I live in Washington Heights. Tara, so you live and you work in New York City. That's right. Yeah. Um, here all the time. Don't have a car, so I don't get out all that often. Now, WFUV, of course, as we all know, is a great place to work, but we all have our frustrations. <laughs> Where do you go to relax? Um, my place is the rooftop of my building. Um, a lot of people I know have, have rooftop decks or, you know, can go up on their rooftop. But I have to say, I believe my rooftop is really special. What makes it so special? Um, well, one thing is the view. I guess that's a big part of it. We are right on the river. Um, we live just north of the George Washington Bridge. So we have this beautiful view of the Hudson and the bridge and the Palisades. And we're 13 floors up. So once you get up there, the traffic is just kind of this low roar, almost like the ocean. Every, every evening in the summer, I can say, around 7.30, 8 o'clock, if we're home, we are up there with a glass of wine watching the sunset. One of the best things about the roof is there are these big uh, wooden um, Adirondack chairs, I guess you call them. And there are maybe eight or ten of them up there. So you can put them in just the right spot if you want to look down at the city or if you want to look across the river at the sunset. And one of the best things about the chairs is they've got these big, wide, flat armrests, which is perfect for setting your glass of wine on. Tara, thank you so much. Thanks. That's Tara Anderson, our own assistant program director and host of Office Roof Deck Parties, one of the many perks of working here at WFUV. Before her was Ben Jones describing the Lamont Young Dreamhouse and Laura Fideli blowing through the New York Times crossword puzzle. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. All of the escapes we've heard about so far this morning are pretty low impact, but some prefer something slightly more active. We recently visited a free Tai Chi class in Bryant Park. My name is Akiko Hikoda. I'm with the Tai Chi Chuan Center. I'm originally from Japan. We've been doing this free morning class thing since 2004. So one thing I want to note throughout the exercise, we want to breathe through the nose. All right, so let's start. Let's stretch the hands. This is a class called Eternal Spring. It's an exercise called Eternal Spring, devised by Master C.K. Chu, which is is my teacher. And uh, it's a combination of Tai Chi and Qigong. And it's like a hybrid that he came up with. It's got all the good things uh, in Tai Chi and Qigong. Okay, drop your arms and slowly come back up. Roll up the standing position and stretch again. Uh, my name is Rob Hoffman. Um, I'm here from uh, New York City, or originally from Holland. 
And I think three years ago, I started to do this group myself, discovered Tai Chi, and started to get involved, went to the classes. big group of people standing in those funny positions and doing those those moves and this hing ha screams and, uh, and it's kind of funny to see that with all the businessmen going to their work uh, business people uh, walking around and uh, looking what is this and then sometimes they just uh, put their bags down and join the class Greg Payam from Brooklyn, Shipset Bay. I work across the street on a construction site. I back the trucks in and I come sit in the park. <laughs> I'm here every day just about, yeah, I watch them in the morning. I think it's good. They look like they're in good shape, some of them. <laughs> um, we do a lot of breathing. Body alignment is very important. Do a lot of stretching, the muscles, and the breathing actually helps the bone and uh, the tendons to develop. So it's a very good health exercise and um, it also calms you down. So it's good for stress management. Relax the shoulders, brush your arms, front of your heart. Pull the elbows back. My name is David Damas. I'm from the Bronx, New York I'm originally, but now I live in Queens, Sunnyside. And it's exercise after work. I work at night, so I come here to relax and get some exercise and learn some Tai Chi. Being in the middle of New York City doing this type of meditation, you have the Bryant Park, the water flowing, very relaxing and soothing, while you have the traffic on the outside, you just kind of block it out. And all the outside things you're going through in your own personal life. And you know, you kind of come into yourself with doing Tai Chi. Tai Chi classes are free throughout the summer, every Thursday morning at 7.30 in Bryant Park at the corner of 41st and 6th. Tai Chi may get you energized for the morning and may power you all the way through lunch, but at some point you're bound to hit that mid-afternoon lull. We all know it, the moment at which all the stress of the day builds up just as your energy level hits rock bottom. One possible solution? Nap time. It's not just for kindergarten anymore. One local company, Metronaps, espouses the benefits of the mid-afternoon siesta and is a facility in the Empire State Building replete with sleep pods and ambient music. We got the lowdown from a devoted Metronapper. My name is Jeff Ragavan, and I'm the director of new business for Akrona Media, which is a search engine marketing company. And we are located in the Empire State Building on the 55th floor in New York City. I'd say my, my job can be very stressful and very hectic. Uh, lately, at least, I haven't really had much time to, you know, do the fun stuff. I don't even have time to eat lunch half the time, usually just at my desk.
I think one of the benefits of Metro Naps is really completely escaping the office. But it's kind of an adventure if you think about it, you know. You just go down an elevator, you know, 20 flights. But it is so refreshing and it's so nice just to completely close your eyes and forget about work. And forget about everything and just recharge. It's like leaving, it's like being in a completely different world, even just for 20 minutes. I think everybody needs rest, and I think going down for a 20-minute recharge really helps a lot. Sometimes I go for more than 20 minutes. I don't tell people that, though. <laughs> right now I'm feeling really tired, actually, and I have three more meetings this afternoon. Okay, so now this is the part where we actually go into the room which is nice and dark, and all these pods are on right now. And this is the pod that I usually take. So <sighs> you could all do all sorts of adjusting on the side over here, but I usually just leave it at the setting it's at because it's very comfortable for me. And I put in here how many minutes I want to go for, which is usually 20 minutes. And then I hit the music button here, and I put the headphones on. And that's it. The sound that they have on here is very, it's an ambient, kind of just a very, you know, mellow, it's a sound, and it's very relaxing. The first few times that you come to Metronaps is definitely, it's, it's hard to adjust right away because it's something that's new to you. Um, after a few times, you get used to it, and you could relax. Um... You definitely don't want to fall into a deep sleep because then you actually leave here being almost more tired. Uh, that's why they recommend doing a 20-minute nap because you're just giving your body just enough time to, you know, recharge, relax. After that, you go into, you know, what they call REM sleep. That's not good because then you, you really want to sleep. And you know how that feels when you get, you know, when you wake up after a long two-hour nap or something and you feel completely disoriented. So 20 minutes goes up and it actually, it vibrates. Um, the whole machine actually goes And that actually startles me sometimes because I'm so comfortable. It's not a good way for me to get up. Sometimes I get up a few minutes before that actually goes off because I know that it's ending. Or I'll take a peek and see how many, how many minutes I have left. Kind of like in the morning when you were a kid and the alarm went off and you hit it again and you had five more minutes in nap time. Jeff Ravigan works in the Empire State Building, where he also fits in a power nap whenever he can. You can find out more information at metronaps.com. So we've come across some pretty interesting ways to escape the hustle and bustle in the Big Apple. But perhaps the best escape of all comes just by being at home. When we come back, we'll speak with the author of a new book about neighborhoods and how we can make the most of them. This is Cityscape from WFUV and WFUV.org. Thanks for listening.
If you browse through the real estate section of any newspaper, you're bound to find ads for houses or apartments that say, quote, great neighborhood. But what is it that makes a neighborhood great? And if you don't think your neighborhood fits that bill now, what can you do to change it? With us now on Cityscape is Jay Waljasper. Jay's the author of The Great Neighborhood Book, a do-it-yourself guide to placemaking. He's also a senior fellow at the nonprofit organization Project for Public Spaces. Jay, welcome to the show. Yes, good morning. Okay, Jay, so what separates a great neighborhood from a mediocre one? There's a lot of factors that affect that, but I think the most important one is really just the human factor. How much people are involved in their neighborhood, how much they care about their neighborhood, how much pride they have in their neighborhood. So you don't have to be a fancy, wealthy neighbor to be a great neighbor. You just need to have a neighborhood where people really kind of roll up their sleeves and solve the problems that are in front of them. You had an epiphany of sorts about how great neighborhoods enhance lives during a trip to Paris, right? Absolutely. You know, I came to Paris and thinking, oh, I'm going to cover every square inch of this great city and see it all. And my wife and I found that there's such a great neighborhood right around our hotel that we spent most of our time just hanging out there. When I got home, I thought, that's the kind of place I want to live. And did you find that place? Well, exactly. Uh, It took some time, but uh, I live in Minneapolis. And uh, unfortunately, the neighborhoods that had sort of the most kind of street life Parisian feel were all too expensive to buy a house in. So my wife and I ended up buying a house in a neighborhood that, um, you know, nice neighborhood, nice houses, but there wasn't a lot going on there. It felt a little bit like an exile. (laughs) And uh, but anyway, we got together with our neighbors and started just having potluck dinners. And from that, arose a lot of kind of energy and creativity in the neighborhood. And today it's got great coffee shops. It's got a good bookstore, a good record store. Um, There's just a lot more vitality in life on the streets. And I think that's in large part due to the fact that the people in the neighborhood got together and said, we just want this place to have more energy, to, to be more fun. Never underestimate the power of a meal, you say. When people get together over a meal, I mean, I think that's the the hallmark of our species civilization. And um, amazing things can happen. In my own neighborhood, we stopped the widening of a street through the middle of the neighborhood. And it began really with a group of us that got together for potluck dinners. Um, No political agenda was in mind. It was just a way to drink some wine, eat some cheese, and enjoy a Friday evening. Uh, But when we heard about the widening proposal, we immediately moved into action because we were already organized because we were organized around food. And then it was just a small step to being organized around saving the neighborhood. What would you describe as a great neighborhood here in New York City? I spend a lot of time in Brooklyn. Uh, I think Cobble Hill is a great neighborhood. I like Carroll Gardens. I like Park Slope. I also I love the village. Um, it's you know well known, but still there's that kind of wonderful sort of street feel. And although you're in the middle of the biggest city in the world, still the, there's a The Greenwich Village really has a village quality to it, particularly on on the west side. You write in the book how important it is to feel a part of your neighborhood, to be embraced by it. Yes, and to have that as part of your sense of identity. I mean, pride is a really important thing when it comes to the places we live. And some of the neighborhoods with the biggest problems are places where people just essentially have given up on the place. They feel bad about themselves because they live there. So one way to improve these places, sure, more jobs, sure, better um, crime prevention and things like that, but also giving the people the idea that there's something special about that neighborhood and there's something special about themselves. You have success story after success story in the book. Simple things that you can do, like one gentleman who put a bench outside of his house. Exactly. Yeah. He lived way out in the suburbs of Toronto. I mean, not a great neighborhood by anybody's estimation, a quiet place where there wasn't much going on. And as kind of an experiment, he put a bench out in his front yard and he wasn't sure <laughs> whether this was a good idea or not. But within a short amount of time, he found that the bench was becoming a magnet for people to gather to hang out. 
he found that older people actually would start walking around the block because they had a place they could rest in the middle. And he was worried in the beginning what his neighbors would say, but before long, some of his neighbors had put out benches in their front yards as well. One of the success stories that you include in the book is a park on the Lower East Side of Manhattan mm-hmm. that was once crime-ridden, now no longer. Yeah, yeah. And, and the people living near that park kind of pulled together. They cleaned up the park. They created new activities in the park. They really claimed the park as theirs. And that's often what it takes. Um, great neighborhoods, one of the things they all have in common is there's usually a place where people, folks can gather. They can kind of bump into each other. It's just a place that you don't have anything else to do. Let's wander down and see what's going on. So in this particular neighborhood, the park had not been that place. The park felt like it belonged to sort of the thuggish element. But this neighborhood wanted that park back. They took it back, and I think their lives are richer for it. How do you get your community to get on board? If you're the one individual there saying, you know what, we should do something to change this. We should get more involved. What do you do? Where do you start? First step is to reach out to your neighbors. You could throw a little uh, cocktail party, have a potluck dinner, or maybe just write a flyer and put it under everybody's door. Um, If there's a problem in your neighborhood or if there's an opportunity, that's a great thing to sort of rally around and get people involved. And it's the indirect connections that sometimes really bear fruit. Hanging out at the local coffee shop, hanging out at the local park, and you know, just starting a conversation with someone you don't know. And that may be the catalyst for great things happening, great things blooming. No question that here in New York City, one of our biggest problems is traffic, speeding cars, even in residential neighborhoods. You have a section where you talk about traffic in the book. And one thing that really struck me, and I'm going to read this uh, section right here, stoplights probably do more to encourage lawless and dangerous behavior than any invention since the pistol. (laughs) Yeah, and it's true. And we all do it. When I'm behind the wheel of a car and I'm coming up to a red light and it looks like it may change, I'm flooring it. I want to get through. I don't want to stop. And it's even worse when you go out into the suburbs these days because they have these elaborate systems where if you stop at a red light, you're going to be there for what feels like 15 minutes because there's turn arrows and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, the point is that you really, to go back to the four-way stop sign, to find other ways to do this, then there's a natural rhythm. You know you're going to have to stop and so you don't feel like you're being cheated. Whereas with a red light, it's like, uh, oh, if I don't, you know, I'll have to stop and I'll stay stopped, I'll stay stuck. So it's one of those cases, and oftentimes still people think that stoplights are the solutions, and there's some places where they make sense. But we use way too many of them in our country. And in fact, in Philadelphia again, uh, they took out 800 stoplights at, you know, not super busy intersections, but moderately busy intersections. And they found that within a year, pedestrian accidents were down 39%. So it made those corners a lot safer. You talk a lot about how cars take up so much space. Uh, There's a great story out of San Francisco where folks took over a parking spot and made it a park. (laughs) I met some people in Prague in the Czech Republic that did the same thing. Um, They just took the parking space in front of their house, set up a table there, and brewed up a big pot of oatmeal and had a community breakfast there. Tell us about the organization you work with, Project for Public Spaces. It's a nonprofit group based, um, based in Greenwich Village. And they've been working in neighborhoods really around the world for more than 30 years, helping citizens improve their own community. The starting place for Project for Public Spaces is that the community is the expert. That um, if you want to make changes, want to make positive changes in an area, you really need to work with the people who live there, the people who work there. And that starting place changes how projects get done. So Project for Public Spaces is really devoted to making a difference in New York and in communities everywhere. Rockefeller Center is what it is today, a great public space because of the assistance of PPS, right? Absolutely. It's a great story. PPS was brought in by the people that run Rockefeller Center um, 
to help them with the problem. And what they wanted to know was what are the right, right spikes they should use to put on the planters in the channel gardens to keep people from sitting there. And they thought, well, this PPS has expertise in public spaces. They would know, you know, which spikes would be the most painful so that people would make sure not to sit down. And the PPS people said, well, actually, we've studied the channel gardens, and we don't think that people sitting there is, in fact, any problem. In fact, we think that that actually enhances the place. And what we suggest is instead of putting in spikes, you put in benches on the front of the planters so that people can sit down, read a magazine, eat their lunch, or just watch the world go by. And that's what happened. And now the channel gardens is any tourist that comes to New York. That's one of the places they want to go see. Whereas before, the channel gardens was just a place you walked through on the way to the skating rink. Anything in particular going on right now in New York City that you're aware of that PPS is trying to turn around? Well, PPS has been working a lot on the projects in Brooklyn, high-rise condo projects, and saying, is that really what we want to do with the Brooklyn waterfront? It's a wonderful, wonderful public resource, and do we want to sort of privatize it that way? Also, PPS helped in the kind of the restoration and the revival of Bryant Park, which was once a kind of a junkie haven, and now it's, you know, the city's backyard, really. But unfortunately, a lot of the year, Bryant Park essentially becomes a private space. You know, the Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week is there. Suddenly, people are sort of locked out of their own backyard for a week or two at a time. So we're working on trying to make sure that Bryant Park, it's great to have big marquee events there. But the people shouldn't sort of suffer because of that. Jay Wall Jasper is senior fellow at the nonprofit organization Project for Public Spaces. He's also the author of the great neighborhood book, A Do-It-Yourself Guide to Placemaking. Jay, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Jay Wall Jasper's book is out now from New Society Publishers. And that's all for this week's Cityscape. I hope we've given you at least a half an hour to forget about your troubles. Remember, you can find archived versions of the show and information on the Cityscape podcast all at WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan. Have a great, relaxing weekend.